All right, thank you very much. Thank you for the prayer. Today is Barong Day. It's hot, so it's a good excuse to wear. All right. Um. <laughs> this is a Barong, for those who don't know. Yes, yes. Filipinos know what I'm talking about. All right, this is our last sermon uh, in our series in Revelation, and uh, even though I look forward to the next uh, book that the Lord has for us, the book of Matthew, I do feel just a little bit sad when we finish a series because it's kind of like saying goodbye to an old friend. Of course, when you think back over the last several years that we've had in this book, uh, now, I feel a little bit like a pearl diver. Got a little sack, and uh, we've gone down into the water. We've taken in as deep as we can go, and we've pulled some very precious things out uh, in the time that we've been doing this study. But man, the things we had to leave untouched, the things we couldn't get to. So at the very least, I do hope that uh, all of you will now be lifelong students of the book of Revelation, and that you will approach it without feeling as if it simply cannot be interpreted, or that it's too mysterious for you. I do hope that you will approach it confidently now, uh, in the right way. An old Puritan once said, there are only two things that I want to know. One is whether or not God has spoken, and the second is, what did he say? And there is an approach to the Bible that simply unearths what God really did say. If you study Scripture with that in mind, uh, over the course of walking with the Lord uh, in a very long life, you really come to have, I think, a profound knowledge of the Bible. And often you're not even aware of the degree of knowledge that you actually have. I'm not saying that you can look back over the 90 sermons that we've had. Today is number 90. And you can open any chapter that we've gone through and everything that we've studied. And you, you, you know it all. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I want you to know that I don't remember a lot of it myself. Uh, it's just too much to retain. But learning the Scriptures together really isn't uh, all about trying to resurrect you know, all the old outlines and trying to... Uh, you know, refill the blanks and all the subpoints in detail. But instead, as you study Scripture over time, what you'll find is that uh, when you open the Bible and you just start to read, you can really understand what you're reading in context. And you find that your understanding as a mature believer is immeasurably greater than that of a new Christian. Uh, and especially a lost person who opens the Bible and reads that same page. I mean, he really doesn't have a clue what he's looking at. Now, preachers who don't carefully study the Scripture, preachers who just pick a text here and there, uh, you know, just kind of uh, get by on a Sunday, uh, they're really building a ministry where the emphasis tends to be highly applicational rather than instructional, which sounds good, but it means... Uh, fundamentally, that they're not really growing their people in the knowledge of Scripture. 
I'm not trying to attack any particular church or denomination, but people in churches like that, uh, they're not used to expositional preaching. They typically don't look at their Bibles during a sermon because they don't really care what the text says. They're just waiting for the next application. Uh, They're waiting for the next catchy phrase or striking illustration or funny personal story, some relevant uh, application for them. The Bible students look at their Bible and they really want to know exactly what it does say. And when that happens over the course of years and years, they begin to develop a knowledge that is invisible. And they don't quite know where it came from, uh, but they can read Scripture and generally follow the flow of Revelation uh, as it's given to us, and even explain it to somebody else for the most part. I remember many years ago, my father and I went to China. This is about 20 years ago. And I was watching him teach a chapter in Romans. Someone had asked him to disciple uh, a new believer right there on the spot, and he just opened the Bible to Romans 8, and he started with uh, verse 1, and he just explained it as he went through the verses. And it was his knowledge of Scripture. Uh, After 30 years of personal study and preaching and teaching, where he could just simply lay it out verse by verse. And he could explain it to somebody in a logical way. It's not that he had a series of outlines tucked away in the back of his Bible, uh, or that he memorized everything and he was trying to recite it, but he had just gathered it in year by year over the course of studying and faithful Bible reading so that when he saw the passage, he understood it. And he could explain it. So if you take the time to steadily uh, plow your way through passage after passage in your daily devotion. And if you will follow along in the sermons that we preach here, if you will listen to good preaching in the car perhaps, or in the bus on the way to work, then the greater part of Scripture will begin to become understandable to you. And if you don't think that's the case, just compare where you are today in your understanding of Scripture with someone who hasn't done that especially someone who is a lost person. It's really the same kind of principle, I guess, that is found in any uh, branch of knowledge. Uh, For example, I can watch uh, Brother Glenn Truman with wires, and he just automatically knows what color wire goes where. Uh, And he knows what's safe to touch. And he knows what gear to bring along for the job. Whenever I do a job, I go to the garage about 20 times to get the next tool. I didn't anticipate what I needed for the job. But uh, he, he doesn't even need a manual. He just, he just knows how to do things. And often he does them way beyond the recommendation of the manufacturer. Uh, I've often said that after the apocalypse, Glenn's house will still be standing. Because uh, he's reinforced it so well. I really wish uh, I could retain everything that I've ever studied from the book of Revelation, but I, I simply can't do it. However, before we do begin our final sermon uh, this morning, I'm going to give you something uh, to carry away from this book that may help you, something that you can just put in your pocket. I want to give you eight points that I really hope will stick with you and will help you think your way through the book of Revelation 
the next time that you read it. So I want to give you uh, eight simple points uh, to take with you from our studies. Number one, this is in your outline. Number one, in the first chapter, we have the sight of the Savior. Uh, This is the way he is now. Uh, Perhaps you remember the majesty of that sight that was given to John. It's the sight of the Savior. Number two, in chapters two and three, we have the state of the churches. You have there seven letters to seven literal local churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And yet those churches, you recall, are representative of churches throughout church history. So when you read those letters, you get an understanding of the perpetual conditions of the church in every generation. So remember uh, those two points. Chapter 1, the sight of the Savior. Chapters 2 and 3, the state of the churches. Number 3, in chapters 4 and 5, we have the scenes around the throne. There are two throne scenes when heaven is first opened and we are caught up through the pen of the Apostle John to see the Father and the Son on the throne. It's scenes around the throne. Now the bulk of the book then comes in the fourth point from chapter 6 to 19. You have the seven years of tribulation. The majority of the book of Revelation concerns that terrible time of intense Pressure, which is the word tribulation that God is going to bring on the earth. It's the seven years of tribulation, chapter 6 to 19. Number five, it's the second coming. It's also in chapter 19. The second coming of Jesus Christ in power and glory. Number six, in chapter 20, you have Satan bound and the saints reign. This is the thousand Years when our Lord will reign on the earth. But the interesting thing is the emphasis uh, in the early verses of chapter 20 are not really on Jesus reigning, but it's on the saints reigning. The emphasis tends to be on our reigning more than his reigning in those verses, which I think is fascinating. So it's Satan bound and the saints reign. Now number seven Uh, Chapters 21 and 22 begin with the new heavens and the new earth. But for the sake of keeping our S's, I'm going to call it the second creation. Because that's what it is. I don't believe in a gap theory. I don't believe that uh, we're already in the second creation and there is a third creation, which some people believe. I believe that the new heavens and the new earth are the second creation and that occupies all of chapters 21 and 22 And within that, you also have the New Jerusalem. Now, one more thing to keep in mind, and I think it's the biggest thing of all. It's the overarching theme, because from beginning to end, this book is about the Savior Himself. He is the one who takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father. He is the one who opens the seals on the scroll. He is the one who puts in motion all of the events in that Seven-year tribulation. He is the one who is coming back in chapter 19. He is the one who is reigning in chapter 20 and so on. This is the revelation which God gave to him to show to us the things which must shortly take place. And overall, 
the revelation in the book is about the Savior Himself. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. So there it is. A book of eight easy points to remember. And today we come to the last four verses. So I do want to invite you now to open your Bibles to Revelation 22. And let's just let the Lord take what is here and speak to our hearts as we close together the last book of the Bible. Let's read uh, from verse 18 in chapter 22. It says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I don't really have an overall theme for these particular verses, so this is simply going to be the last sermon on Revelation, really uh, a continuation of the last message, so I've titled uh, the the PowerPoint, uh, Last Words. It's the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his church. These are his final sayings. What do they consist of? Well, verses 18 to 19 leave every reader of this book with a fearful warning. A fearful warning. About 20 years ago, I received a knock at the door. uh, And when I opened it, I was greeted by the sight of three young men wearing white shirts, black pants, and black ties. No, they were not the men in black. They were Mormons. And I felt that I could take them on. So I let them in. And we engaged in a discussion that grew hotter and hotter. And clearly what I began to understand was one of them was quite experienced in this and he was training the other two because they did not say a word. Well, at one point I really thought I had him. And I said something like this. I said, you know, you claim that the Book of Mormon is a continuation of the Bible. And the newest revelation from God to man through the angel Moroni. But you know, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, warns against those who would add to the Word of God. You've added to the Word of God. And the Bible says that God will add to you the plagues of this book. And I looked at the main guy as if I'd struck the coup de grace, the final blow. And he casually replied, well, that only applies to the book of Revelation. We haven't added to that prophecy at all. And I didn't have an answer in that moment. It was round one to the Mormons. Well, I've since studied this warning some more. And in an effort to help you avoid my debate loss, here are four questions I want to answer about that warning. And these are common questions surrounding this passage. Number one, what book is this warning about? What book is it warning about? 
Verse 18 says the words of this book. Verse 19, the words of this book. What book is it referring to? Well, first of all, and unquestioningly, it does concern the book of Revelation itself. That is the primary reference, and we know that because if you look again at verse 18, it doesn't just say the words of this book, but it's the words of the prophecy of this book. And again in verse 19, the words of the book of this prophecy. So clearly the focus is upon the last book of the Bible, and my Mormon friend was right in saying that it does apply to Revelation. But secondly, there can't be any question that by logical and necessary extension, this warning also concerns the entirety of the canon of Scripture. It primarily concerns the book of Revelation, but if it's true for that book, by good and necessary and logical extension, it also concerns the entirety of the canon of Scripture. And let me give you two reasons for that. In the first place, there are certain books whose placement in the Scripture is really inconsequential as far as we know. When you look at how the books are laid out in the Bible, there are some books, you can move them several books forward, several books backward. It really wouldn't affect our understanding or the emphasis of Scripture or even the the progression of revelation in Scripture. But then there are other books where that is simply not true. For example, the book of Genesis. It's the only book with which to begin the Bible. And by the same token, the book of Revelation is the only appropriate book to end the canon of Scripture because it is God's last word to the churches and it points ahead with the most detail to the next events in God's calendar. So its placement as last is providential in the canon. Now, when we recognize that, and then you come to the end of the book, you realize that it not only ends the book of Revelation, but it's also ending the entire canon of 66 books. It all ends with a fearful warning. All right, so that's the first reason. By providential placement, these are the verses that close not just the book of Revelation, but the entire canon of Scripture. The second reason is that all 66 of the uh, books of the Bible have equivalent status. Now, do we understand that the Bible itself does not elevate some of its books above others in the sense that some of the books of the Bible are more inspired or more infallible or more authoritative or more binding on Christians than any other book of the Bible? No. The Bible doesn't do that. In fact, um, this warning is not saying that you can tamper, you know, with other parts of the Bible, but just don't do it with this book. Because, you know, you're going to get in real trouble because of that warning. Now, that isn't what these verses are trying to communicate, because the fact is, the entire canon has equivalent status. Now, that does not mean that all of it has equivalent impact or even equivalent value in the life of a believer. Uh, The parts of the Bible that directly relate to our redemption, for example, are clearly elevated in terms of their content and application. 
but in terms of their status as the inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God, none of them are elevated above the others in that sense. And so this warning must not only apply to the book of Revelation, but to all of God's inspired Word. Now, I can strengthen that point by noting that there are other statements in the Bible parallel to verses 18 and 19 that clearly say the same thing. For example, Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. Now, that prohibition is in the early part of the Bible, uh, by the, you know, the Bible's earliest writer, Moses. So, in the first books of your Bible, you have the same prohibition that you find in the last book of your Bible. Don't add anything and don't delete anything. There's a similar statement in Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You can see the same kind of warning is found throughout Scripture, and it does not apply solely to the book of Revelation. So again, what book does this warning concern? Primarily, and in the first place, yes, the book of Revelation. But then, by the providential placement of that book as the last one in the canon, and by the equivalent status of all the books of the Bible, this same warning applies to tampering with any part of the Word of God. Question number two. What is this warning against? In other words, what are, what are we being told not to do? Well, in verse 18, we are not to add to God's words. And in verse 19, we are not to take away or subtract from God's words. But what does that mean? I think this is a critical question, especially in a climate of controversy over texts and translations of Scripture. I know people who will dogmatically assert that only one Greek text is actual Scripture. That God only preserved His Word through one Greek text, and only one translation of that text is God's authoritative Word to English-speaking people. And these same people go to these very verses, and they take the position that any other translation, well, that's adding to the Word of God, that's subtracting from the Word of God, and therefore, whoever made that translation falls under the curse of these verses. So I want to give you three things this is not a warning against. Number one, this is not a warning against making inadvertent mistakes when copying the text of Scripture. In other words, it doesn't refer to well-meaning people who are trying to make copies of Scripture and they inadvertently make mistakes in their copying or printing. In fact, up until the invention of the printing press, as far as we know, we don't have any evidence of two handwritten manuscripts of Scripture that are exactly alike. You say, well, how can that be? Well, try copying anything by hand. Try typing anything. Look at the texts you send. It's quite easy to make little mistakes, to leave words out. Uh, you know, to let autocorrect, put the wrong word in. And that's just human error at work. I was just corrected the other day. When I put, 
I was typing the heading of a document and I mistyped a key word because autocorrect chose the wrong one. And instead of Gold Coast as the heading, it said Gold Coach, which my faithful admin pointed out to me. So if people copying the text of Scripture in the ancient past were subject to this curse simply by inadvertently omitting a word or adding a word, nobody would ever be so bold as to make a single copy. Uh, Even after the invention of the printing press, printed copies of Scripture often had errors in them. There's a famous early Bible that was printed in 1631, and they dubbed it the Wicked Bible because the printer left out the word not in the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And it said, thou shalt commit adultery. And uh, this was under the oversight of the royal printer, a man by the name of Robert Barker, who was subsequently fined and who died in debtor's prison, uh, regretting it for the rest of his life. Uh, Although he doesn't fall under the curse in Revelation for his mistake, because this is not a warning against inadvertently making errors when copying or printing the text of Scripture. Number two, this is not a warning against translating the Bible or even inadvertently mistranslating it. Now, why am I even bringing that up? Well, a translation does not reproduce the text it is translating word for word. Anyone who's ever worked with another language knows that you cannot take a base language and produce something word for word in the receptor language and end up with something that's going to read well, or in some cases is even intelligible, because that's not how human language works. For example, in Matthew 1, the Greek text says that when Mary returned from Elizabeth's house, she was this is the exact wording, She was found in stomach having. That's the literal Greek. And I'll I'll bet you don't have any English translation that says that. You might have a translation that says, uh, you know, she was found to be with child. But you know what? The word child didn't even in the text. And what happened to the word stomach? You've just omitted a word. You've just added a word, right? Well, not really, because no translation reproduces a text word for word in many cases, and it shouldn't. So the King James says she was found to be with child. Another translation says she was expecting. They might use the word pregnant. And it's all conveying the same meaning, although the original is what I gave to you. So there's not a prohibition against the translation of Scripture, which out of necessity adds or omits words or may even sometimes mistranslate. It might be faulty in a particular line or phrase. Thirdly, This is not a warning against misinterpreting the Bible. Even though every teacher or preacher has great responsibility when it comes to interpretation. But this is not a warning against misinterpretation by true Bible believers. For example, in one of the early messages of this book, we discovered there are four major interpretive positions on this one book of the Bible. There's a position that everything up until the second coming of Jesus Christ in chapter 19, all of that happened in the first century. What do we call that view? The preterist view. 
Then you have the view that up until the second coming, uh, Revelation is simply a chronicle of human history. Didn't all happen in the first century, but it's happening throughout history, and we're located somewhere in those chapters. That's called the historicist view. Then you have the view that chapters 6 to 19 are happening all the time. That's the spiritual view. So you dip into any one of the chapters and, hey, there's my life right there somewhere. It's simply the struggle between good and evil. It's happening all the time. And and so they uh, symbolize everything. And that's uh, a third view. And then, of course, we have taken what we call the futurist position in our church, which says that basically everything from chapter 4 onwards is all future. It hadn't happened yet. But even then, when you take that position, now you get to the whole issue of the Lord's return. And some people will say that He's going to return before chapter 6 starts. And some people say, no, He's going to return somewhere in between chapter 6 to 19. And others will say, no, Jesus returns in chapter 19. And then when it comes to the saints reigning in chapter 20, you've got three views on that. And we, you know, we surveyed all of these things that are historically held by true Bible believers. And all I'm saying is, this is not a warning for anyone in those groups uh, to hold up this passage like a club and beat down all their opponents and saying, hey, you're adding to the Word of God. You're subtracting from the Word of God. You fall under this curse. And that brings me to this. What is this actually a warning against? Well, this is referring to deliberately changing or altering the text out of unbelief or a disrespect for that text as the inerrant Word of God. Let me say that again. This is referring to anyone deliberately altering the text because they don't believe or respect it as the inerrant Word of God. Now, there's a striking illustration of this in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, you got this man named Jehudai who is reading Scripture in the presence of one of Judah's last kings, the wicked king Jehoiakim. It's wintertime, and they're in the king's chambers, and the king has a fire uh, nearby. And Jehudai would read you know, a couple of columns of Scripture. He's got a manuscript of the Bible with him. It's a scroll. And he's unrolling the scroll as he's reading. And the scripture says in Jeremiah 36 that he would read two or three columns. And then the king took a scribe's knife and he would cut them off the scroll and toss them into the fire. And uh, then Jehudai would read some more and the king would get up and cut that out of the scroll and throw that into the fire. So the whole thing just goes up in flames. That's an attempt to deliberately eliminate the text of Scripture. Or conversely, to add something that is not God's inerrant word. This is the kind of thing that Thomas Jefferson did. He was the third president of the United States, but he went through the Bible one day with a pair of scissors and he cut out the parts of Scripture that in his estimation were not true. He wrote to his friend John Adams in October of 1813, and he said, we must reduce our volume to the simple evangelists. He's talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we must select, even from them, the very words only of Jesus. 
We must pair off what they had been led to by forgetting or not understanding or by giving their own misconceptions and expressing unintelligibly for others what they had not understood for themselves. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently Christ's and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. That's Thomas Jefferson. Now, back to our four questions. Number one, what part of the Bible does this warning concern? Number two, what is this warning against? Now, number three, who could do such a thing? Who was this warning for? And the simple answer to that is no true child of God. No true believer would deliberately omit portions of God's Word or add to it with his own words or any other person's words as if they were equivalent to God's words. You can't do that and be a true believer because your will is entirely out of harmony with the will of God. Now, I can back that statement up with the fourth question I want to answer, and that concerns the nature of the threat. What is the nature of the threat? When you consider the threat, when you consider the punishment that will be experienced, it is apparent that no true believer could do that because what does it say? In verse 18, it refers to experiencing the plagues that are written in this book. In chapter 9, verse 18, that includes the plagues of fire, smoke, and brimstone. Chapter 15, verse 1, it's the plagues of the coming bowls of the wrath of God. And in verse 19, they have no part in the book of life or the new Jerusalem to come. And I think that's enough to convince us that it's obvious that no true believer could do this. And yet our adversary, the devil, from the very beginning has historically attempted to destroy or distort the written texts of Scripture. This is a constant effort that is going on right now. And yet, the fact remains that today, there are more copies of God's Word in more human languages in the world than at any other time in human history. So in spite of all of the satanic effort out there, the Word of God continues to flourish. One poet put it into a beautiful illustration, and it goes like this. I paused one day outside the village blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. And then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, asked I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he. The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word. For ages, skeptic blows have beat upon. And though the noise from falling blows was heard, the anvil stands unharmed, the hammers gone. It's true. They're all gone. Because you cannot do away with the eternal word of God. And although the current hammers, as you know, are trying to erase things like gender from the Bible and and the Ten Commandments and passages condemning sin, they will all fall as well. 
and the Bible will remain. That brings us secondly in verse 20 now to the promise that we are given. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. We are left with a fearful warning, but then we are given. You ready for this? We are given the last promise in the Bible. There are thousands of promises in the Word of God. What do you think the last promise is going to concern? Is it money? Is it earthly shelter? Is it health? Is it healing? Is it success? Is it happiness? No. The last promise concerns the one event that is going to ensure that everything is set right for all of eternity. He is coming, and He's coming quickly. This is what the Lord referred to on His last night before He went to the cross on our behalf when He said to His disciples in the upper room, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. Fanny Crosby wrote, Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture, when I see his blessed face and the luster of his brightly beaming eye, how my full soul shall praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepares for me a mansion in the sky. Well, how does the church respond to this? Verse 20, this is the third thing in this text. The church's or the believer's response. The promise is, I am coming quickly. And the church responds by saying, Amen. Now, the word Amen here is actually a Hebrew word. And it refers to something that is so firm and unshakable, it is certain. It is sure. You can, you can take it to the bank. Well, maybe not today. <laughs> you can bank on it. <laughs> of course, this is the word that our Lord uses dozens of times in the Gospel, and He actually doubles it in the Gospel of John. Uh, it appears in the New King James Version as most assuredly, but other versions might say truly, truly. But it's really the word amen. We, uh, you would pronounce it amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, most assuredly, truly, truly, you can base your life on what I'm going to say here. It's rock solid. Well, here's the church, and it's picking up our Lord's own term and then using it here. So we've just been told that God's revelation has ended. There won't be any more apostles who will add any more to the text of Scripture. And the church says, Amen. There won't be any more prophets who fill us with ecstasy by telling us more about the future than what we already have in Scripture. And the church is content with that. And it says, Amen. There won't be any more seers who have visions and who dream dreams and who come and portray for us something that has never been seen in the Bible. And the church says, Amen. 
Jesus said, the very next thing on my calendar is this, I come quickly. And the church says, Amen. And then it requests that he do so. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. If 2 Peter 3.8 is right about one day being with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, then the Lord has been away for little less than two days now. So how blessed would it be if he doesn't wait until the third day? But he just goes ahead and comes. Come, Lord Jesus, because redemptive history won't be complete until this final event. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8 that all of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together with us until this present time, eagerly waiting for the redemption of our body, the adoption, when we receive our full inheritance in Christ. Yes, we do pray in this way. And then finally, in verse 21, we are left with the final benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, I mentioned earlier that some of the books in the Bible can't be put in any other position appropriately. And that is also true for the last book of the Old Testament. You remember how the Old Testament ends? In the New King James Version, the last word is the word curse. It is God threatening to strike the earth with a curse. Now, if God had not sent His Son in the opening chapters of the New Testament, and if His Son had not picked up His cross and humbly submitted to all of the Father's will, and if He had not allowed His body to be broken until His blood flowed freely, if He had remained in the grave and not risen, on the third day, if He had not ascended to the Father's right hand, then brothers and sisters, we would remain under that curse. But of course, the New Testament reveals the completion of all of those acts and it tells us that He is right now making intercession for us and then He has promised to come for us. And it is His intention to present us faultless before the throne of His Father's glory without spot or wrinkle or anything like that. We are going to be holy and blameless before God. So it's no wonder then that your Bible can end in the way that it does. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus just just be with you all. Just relish His grace. Enjoy it. Be blessed by it. God has pronounced that His grace is for us and He has ordained that your New Testament end with a benediction of grace. Old Testament, curse. New Testament, grace. It's wonderful how John Newton picked up on this concept And we all know the opening stanza of Amazing Grace, but you know there are other stanzas there as well. And you come to know the truth of those verses, I think, more and more 
as a believer the older you get. One of those stanzas says this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Maybe you remember the day when you didn't fear God's judgment. You lived really as if there was no God. Well, it says it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And then it says, and grace my fears relieved. Why? Well, because you came to the realization that all of God's wrath fell on His Son. It didn't have to fall on you. And in the moment that you experience that, this is how Newton goes on to describe it, how blessed did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Then he writes this, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Young people, the older that you get, the more you look back on life and you become aware that this really has been the case. The terrible, dangerous snares of youth are everywhere. Alexander White said, there is not a more slippery slope than youth. If you got through your youth unscathed, I want you to know it was the grace of God. Just look at the statistics as to what young people have done and what they are doing. And if you haven't done those things, it is, it is simply the grace of God. But then you go into your young adulthood and for some of us, the early years of marriage and raising your children, and then middle age with the aches and pains that begin to appear, and then into your old age, and the further you go into life's journey, the more keenly you become aware that through many dangers, many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Now say the last line with me. Can, you say, can we say it together? Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, And grace will lead me home. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. The Lord comes. Mara Natha. Remember that? Maranatha. Our Lord, come. Let's bow for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for these promises, precious promises you've given us in your word. How grateful we are that so many of us know and believe and we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has played the Christian perhaps for much of their life, but inside they are empty, Lord, open their eyes to the truth. And may we rejoice in that one lost sheep coming into the fold. Thank you, Father, for what we have done throughout this book. Bless us as we continue to study your word and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.